If you enjoy studying the Bible, but have grown frustrated looking for solid content you can trust, welcome to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study each day, five days a week. Every Monday, the team at Get Fed Today posts five hand-selected sermons from a vast catalog of reliable Bible teachers for you to enjoy on your commute, to and from work, during your daily walk or run, or that hour you spend working out. Please note, Get Fed Today only posts content that is already available for free on the internet. Nothing about this ministry is monetized, and a few costs associated with hosting the podcast have been covered by a single benefactor. In fact, Get Fed Today is a volunteer ministry run by a team of Christ followers who love God's Word, enjoy good Bible teaching, and genuinely want to make it as easy as possible for their fellow brothers and sisters to get fed today. All you have to do is subscribe. For quick links to the podcast available on Apple, Google, and Spotify, simply visit GetFedToday.com. And again, that's GetFedToday.com. The title of my message this morning, Gender Matters to God. We'll read our text and then we'll pray. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, Paul writes to the church there, and he says these words. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for man. For this reason... The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And then we're told in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word. Lord, you haven't just put us here on this planet. You haven't just turned us loose, but you've given explanations and instructions to us in your word. A man is a fool who goes through life, who doesn't consult and heed the instructions of your word. Lord, the fear of you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pay attention and take heed to your word today. Challenge us, strengthen us, encourage us, redirect us if necessary. Lord, comfort our hearts. Make us the men, Lord, that you desire and that our families deserve. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God's creation was accomplished by specific acts over six distinct days. Each step of God's creation was marked by particulars. You see, rather than a uniform world of boring sameness, God's creation was full of variety. At each turn, God drew clear distinctions. In fact, Genesis begins when God divides the light from the darkness. The first strike of creation is to separate. Next, God divides the waters from under the atmosphere from the waters above the atmosphere. 
Afterwards, again he divides. He gathers the seas and he separates them from the dry land. God then creates a myriad of vegetation. And yet in keeping with the pattern of his creation, each plant multiplies after its specific kind. When God created, he didn't just paint with a broad brush. No, creation was accomplished along narrow lines. God drew out specific boundaries and parameters, and then he colored between the lines. On day four, God again separates. This time, the day from the night. He created fish and birds and beasts, but within biological boundaries. Each order or genus or family is narrowly specific. Genesis tells us that God fills the sea until it teems with life. But each species multiplies only after its own brand. In fact, the terms species and specific are from the same root word. Obviously, God places a high priority on maintaining distinctions within his creation. Understand, God himself, his very nature, is an example of distinction and specificity. The Bible teaches that the Godhead is a blend of unity and diversity. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is the Hebrew call to worship. The ancient priest would cry out to God's people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew word translated one is the word ikad. It speaks of a compound unity. My fist is one fist, but it consists of five distinct and individual fingers. Throughout the Bible, we're taught that there is only one God. But this one God exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians refer to this truth as the triune nature of God. Or the Trinity. And each member of the Godhead has a specific role that he assumes. The Father sits on his throne in heaven and is sovereign over creation. The Son comes to earth to become a man, to redeem and to save. The Spirit then takes up where Jesus leaves off. He points people to the Son. The Holy Spirit lives within believing hearts and he imparts God's love and power to us. All three members of the Godhead are equal in importance, but they are distinct in the role that they play. The fact the Son is submissive to the Father and the Spirit promotes the Son doesn't make the Son inferior to the Father or the Spirit less divine than the Son. All three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal in nature, but they are distinct in their roles. And there is no competition or friction within this arrangement. I mean, the son never complains. Why is the father always worship while I have to suffer on the cross? The spirit's never bucking for more attention. Why do I have to lead people to Jesus? Can I grab a few headlines of my own? You never see the members of the Trinity question or complain about their specific roles. God exists and functions in diversity yet harmony. Well, back to Genesis, the creation account reaches its apex. The cap and crown of God's creation, he makes man. But again, his work is with a significant distinction. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God splits humanity into two specific genders, male and female. Gender mirrors the Trinity. Distinctions of male and female reflect God's glory, His image. The unity of our humanity blended with the diversity of our gender is one way that humans are made in the image of the triune God. Apparently, gender matters to God. The Bible teaches that masculinity and femininity are not just the result of society's nurturing and educating and the conditioning of the sexes. No, gender differences are the result of creation. God designed maleness and femaleness and the specific traits that are unique to both. It's interesting, in the Bible, in Ephesians 5, in 1 Timothy 2, in 1 Corinthians 11... Whenever the Bible speaks of gender, it always reverts back to Genesis and to God's creation. I believe God is saying to us that gender is much deeper. It's a much deeper issue than just first century customs. Gender roles are entrenched in the very makeup of the sexes. Masculinity and femininity result from the creation, not from culture. Famed Harvard zoologist E.O. Wilson writes, Much of what we ascribe to men and women as socially constructed roles are deeply embedded in their genes. God made men to be men and women to be women. And he doesn't want males acting like females or females acting like males. God wants members of both gender to accept and to maintain their distinctions. Let me say it again. Gender matters to God. As a friend of mine is fond of saying, how long for the day when men were men and women were proud of it. (laughs) Yet this is not the mood and push prevailing in today's society. Godless religion, paganism of old, and new age thought today abhors any distinction between the sexes. The pagan ideal is an asexual society. The priority of today's media-driven, popular paganism is the opposite of God's creation. God stressed separation and specificity. All created creation was about distinction and diversity and variety, whereas the pop religion of Oprah is all about oneness. Neo-paganism abolishes distinctions. Everything is one. Even God and his creation are one. Here's the mantra. All is in God and God is in all. Don't look outside of yourself for God. Look for the God within. The religion of evolution teaches that all of life is qualitatively the same. The only factors distinguishing mankind from the algae growing out there in the retention pond are chance and development. Human beings are no greater nobility than a plant or an animal. 
This is why the neo-pagans consider it evil to kill an animal for its fur or for sport. Or to cut down a tree to produce lumber or to dig up plants to build a house. And this insistence on oneness extends even to gender. This is why paganism is unisex and gender neutral. It denies any distinction within nature, even when it comes to the sexes. Supposedly, we're all just one. And this goes deeper than just unisex restrooms. The celebrated sacrament of today's paganism is same-sex marriage. It glorifies oneness. It erases the boundaries and distinctions that God has weaved into the very fabric of our society. You see, homosexuality is all about unity with no diversity. Under the LGBT rainbow, distinctions get denied. It's oneness run amok. And it is a direct assault on God's order. Sameness was never God's plan. The creator is infinitely creative. The true God is separate from his creation. And he works within nature to divide and to specify and to establish roles. And this shows up in gender. God made the sexes not to compete, not to clash, not to cancel each other out, but to complement one another. Heterosexual marriage honors the distinctiveness found in God's creation and in his very nature. Let me say it again. Gender roles matter to God. From creation until today, God wants men to be men and women to be women. Society shouldn't alter those roles. God intends for gender to shape our society. There is a fad that I hope has hit its peak. We don't really want this to catch on. Men's hosiery. (laughs) Pantyhose for men. Here come the men in tights. There is actually a website, legwearformen.com. It advertises an assortment of male hosiery. Control top tights and footless tights and opaque tights and sheer tights and support tights and winter tights. The website explains, it has nothing to do with gender confusion The bulk of our wearers are straight men. Men have worn tights for centuries. The Romans gave their soldiers leggings to wear some 2,000 years ago. Well, that may be true. Good for the Romans. But if really old Romans want to wear pantyhose, that's up to them. Not me, buddy. I believe there are masculine garments and there are feminine garments. In fact, here is the thought behind 1 Corinthians 11. Men need to dress like men, and women should dress like women. As we've noted, gender matters to God. Some of you might remember when uh, the quarterback, the football player, Joe Namath, posed in a pair of pantyhose. After Joe's surprise victory in Super Bowl III, he did a commercial. Of course, over the course of his career, Namath had undergone multiple knee surgeries. He had some notoriously feeble knees. 
He was the most unlikely candidate on earth to pose in a pair of pantyhose. In fact, here was the punchline. I don't wear pantyhose, but if sheer pantyhose makes my legs look good, think of what they'll do for yours. The idea behind the ad was that men don't wear pantyhose. Now, obviously, society and fashion and styles and culture somewhat dictate what constitute a masculine article of clothing and a feminine article of clothing. For example, in Scotland, a kilt is a traditional male garment. I think I got a picture here. There you go. At least he's got a shotgun. That's all I can say for him. But trust me, on the streets in Lilburn, Georgia, a kilt is a frilly skirt. If I lived in Scotland, I might wear a kilt. But I live in Georgia, buddy, and down south, a kilt or pantyhose just ain't manly. This is why I say fight the tights. Just say no siree to hosiery. If we can label anything feminine, it ought to be pantyhose. Now, if you're a male and you're wearing pantyhose this morning... Under your jeans, I'm not condemning you. But please, just don't tell anybody, would you? (laughs) When God created us, he did so male and female. He created us along specific lines with distinction. And as a result, men should look and act and think and dress and talk like men. While women should look and act and think and dress and talk like women. This is the idea behind our text here in 1 Corinthians 11. In the first century, Gentile women wore head coverings. Now this was nothing like the Muslim burqa. A burqa conceals a woman's beauty. A Corinthian scarf was a show of submission. It was usually just a light scarf, just sort of draped over the crown of her head. In first century Corinth, a headscarf was a symbol that the woman wearing it was under authority, that she had a husband or a father. Of course, today in Western culture, a woman's relationship to her husband is not what we think of when we see a headscarf. For us, a headscarf is usually a fashion statement. In the roaring 20s, it was the rage. Or maybe a headscarf means that she didn't have time to get dressed that morning and kind of style her hair, and so she just threw something over the top of her head. But it has nothing to do with submission. Yet there are some symbols in modern American culture that do make a statement about a woman's relationships and attitude toward authority. A young lady who requires her fiance to ask her parents for her hand in marriage is observing a custom that acknowledges submission. When she takes her husband's last name, when she wears his wedding ring, when she exchanges traditional vows, these are similar statements. You see, the woman is adopting the symbols of submission that are observed by modern American culture. You see, the problem in Corinth was that the Christians felt that they had liberty to ignore these symbols in their culture. In Christ, they had experienced a new parity. Christian women were equal with Christian men. 
in terms of their acceptance with God and their significance and even their giftedness. But equal does not mean same. God not only made mankind with distinction, but he assigned diverse and unique roles to both male and female. In our text, Paul addresses the fact that Christian women should have a symbol of authority over their head. And his explanation takes us back to Genesis. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for man. The first woman, Eve, was from and for her husband, Adam. She was taken from his side. And her role in their relationship was to stand by his side. The fact that the male came first and the female followed reflected God's governing principle in the home and now in the church, male headship and female partnership. This doesn't mean that women are inferior to men or that women should be dominated by men. Instead, it calls on men to lovingly lead, to be at the head of their family and for women to willingly let them. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writes, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Here's God's chain of command. The father leads the son. The son leads the man. And the man leads his wife. And recognize The truth that God the Father is head over God the Son doesn't diminish Jesus in any way. It doesn't make him inferior. Likewise, a man's headship in the home and in the church should never diminish a woman. To the contrary, women should grow and flower and flourish under the care of loving and unselfish men. Years ago, there was a billboard ad for Virginia Slim Cigarettes that went up near our church. It pictured a beautiful young lady with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She was standing in the way. She was impeding the progress of a young man. And the billboard said, who cares who wears the pants? And every day I'd drive past that billboard and I would answer it. I would shout, God cares who wears the pants. And he does. And because God cares, Christians should care too. The Christian women of Corinth needed to be submissive to their dads and to their husbands. This didn't change at the fall. Nowhere did God alter his original distinctions of male and female. This was still his plan. And so Paul suggests that the Corinthian women keep the scarf on their head. If not, their heart and their attitude would be misunderstood by the culture around them. If Paul were writing to Christians today, he wouldn't talk about headscarves, but he would talk about a woman taking her husband's last name instead of keeping her own or maybe hyphenating it. He would talk about her wearing his wedding ring and putting his name first on the checks or whatever our culture might deem as an expression of authority and submission between the sexes. Headship and submission are creation principles, whereas headscarves and last names and wedding rings are cultural symbols. 
But God wants us to affirm his timeless truths through our cultural expressions. In fact, our willingness to conform our cultural liberties to biblical priorities reveals an obedient heart. Hey, it is God's desire to use gender to shape society. And with the time I have left, I want to list three ways that gender roles impact a culture. Gender blesses a people with symbols for security and with significance. Gender blesses a people with symbols for security and with significance. Here's one way that gender informs a society. It embeds into the fabric of a culture inescapable symbols that guide all of its citizens, whether they realize it or not, into God's big truths. Understand, God is into symbols. We we participated in some symbols last night that were very meaningful to us and brought us into a deep fellowship with our Lord Jesus, His bread and His wine. Even before sin entered the world, God packed his creation with symbols. Genesis 1 verse 14 tells us that God made the stars. Why? For signs. Some Bible scholars believe that the original Zodiac taught the gospel in the stars. The Zodiac begins with a virgin. It ends with a lion. These are the bookends of the gospel. Jesus was born of a virgin, but he will return like a lion. Sadly, the ancient Zodiac has been corrupted. But these signs abound. Think of the sex act itself. It's laced with spiritual truth. A man woos a woman. He then penetrates her with his seed. He plants his life within her womb. She nurtures that seed. She bears fruit. Then she presents the child, the fruit of her womb, back to the man. This is the gospel. God loves us and he woos us to himself. When we invite him into our lives, the Holy Spirit penetrates our spirit with the seed of God's word. It gets implanted in our hearts. We then nurture it through repentance and faith and obedience. The seed of the word bears fruit in our lives. The fruits of the spirit and that of good works that we in turn give back to Jesus, to his praise and to his glory. This is so cool to me. Sex teaches the gospel. Who would have thunk it? Heterosexual intercourse points people to God. Even if they're not looking for him, his truth is still seen. And here's why sexual perversion is so serious. It's not only harmful to you, but it distorts the sanctity and reverence of sex. Pornography mocks God's sacred symbols. In today's culture, male sexuality is almost never portrayed as a loving and gentle, committed means of seed bearing and birth. It's always about lust and domination and self-gratification. Sex in the world of porn is a perversion of the glorious picture and sacred symbols that God intended. And this is why the definition of marriage is so vital to our society. Throughout history, civilizations like the Greeks and Romans have flirted with homosexuality. And it was one of the factors that led to their downfall. 
Yet even in the cultures that tolerated homosexuality as an individual preference, never did anyone elevate it to the status of marriage. The roles of husband and wife depict the relationship between Christ and His church. A same-sex marriage mars that picture and makes a mockery of all that's sacred about marriage. America is as blind as a bat. Marriage derives its highest significance not because it makes two people happy or just because it orders society or even that it promotes the raising of kids. Marriage is special because it conveys spiritual truths about the nature of God. God took a rib from Adam's side. He used it to create for him a bride. On the cross, a spear was thrust through Jesus' side. Outflowed blood and water. The same blood that washes away your sin. God took from Jesus' side that which he would use to create a bride. The church for his son. Everything about God's marital blueprint conveys spiritual truth. Husbands should love and lead their wives as Jesus loves and leads the church. Wives should submit to their husbands as the church Loves and submits to Christ. And this is reason enough, men, to fight for your marriage. In fact, I'm sure that there are some marriages in the room this morning that are in jeopardy. Perhaps your marriage is in peril. Some of you have come this weekend on the verge of bailing on your marriage. Listen to me. You cannot give up. Much too much is at stake. Read again our text, chapter 11, verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This blows my mind. What do the angels have to do with it? The gender roles we're called on to maintain in the home and in the church are lessons not only to society and to the family, but to angels. The angels of God are glued to gender. They learn of love and the gospel and redemption by how we treat our spouse. Don't you ever say, oh, my marriage doesn't really matter. It's just a trivial pursuit. No, one day you might end up with a beefy, burly, battle-hardened angel in your face telling you just the opposite. Gender roles speak to the angels. In the darkest days of World War II... Winston Churchill said to the battle-weary British people, Wars are not won by evacuation, and neither are good marriages. We get so myopic. We think that marriage is primarily about me. Well, it's not. You are way down on the priority list in your marriage. (laughs) Marriage is about health and stability for future generations. Marriage is about a strong fabric for our society. It's about safety in the streets. It's about spiritual truth. I was once told by a man, the best thing I could do for my kids is to love their mom. And you know, that's good. That's a good point, but it's too narrow. For loving my wife is the best contribution I can make to my culture and to my community and even to the kingdom of God. On the other hand, divorce is not only a sin against your spouse and kids, it is a sin against God. And the church. And the Christian way of life. And your fellow man. And future generations. And apparently even to the angels. 
Divorce is not a sniper's rifle aimed precisely at one person. It is a pipe bomb blast that sprays a wide radius and damages stuff you never meant to target. Divorce distorts the big picture that God wants painted. I challenge you men to work on your marriage. You need to stick with it. Well, here's the second way that gender shapes a society. The role of true God-ordained masculinity and male assertiveness provides a society with security and protection that it needs to survive against the forces of evil. Let me start here with an observation. Just because a blind contestant might win a skeet shooting competition, it doesn't mean that everybody with a gun should close their eyes before they shoot. Follow me? As the old saying goes, an exception doesn't make the rule. That's what I'm trying to say. And the same is true when it comes to the strength of men and women. Oh, I'm sure you can find some woman somewhere who can beat me up. In fact, she might surface as this thing gets out on the internet. I don't know. Hey, but just because one gal proves to be a stronger and better fighter than one guy, it doesn't mean that the same is true for all women and for all men. The truth is, is that most men are more aggressive and competitive and even combative than most women. And I, for one, am glad. I want my wife and my mother and my daughter to represent the fairer sex. I don't want them to be like my gnarly boys. Sons should be tougher. This is the way God made the sexes. It's been this way from creation. And rather than deny the obvious, we should accept and appreciate these distinctions in gender. We need mighty men. Our society requires their toughness. In his book, Manliness, Harvard professor Harvey Mansfield, he writes of the need for men to fight wars and stop terrorism. He observes, women on their own are not ruthless enough. And we should be glad. But Manfield goes on to write what some today are trying to ignore. He says, the disaster of September 11, 2001, sharply reminded Americans that it is sometimes necessary to fight. And that in the business of government, fighting comes before caring. On 9-11, women were reminded that men can come in handy. The heroes of that day were exclusively male, as were the villains. There are evil men in our world. And in light of the aggression that they are determined to pose upon us, there comes a time when good men have to rise up and resist. Strong men are needed to protect our society. Oh, in peacetime, feminism tends to flourish. The pretty boys come center stage. Manly men are frowned upon. They're considered uncouth and outdated. Oh, but in times of war, society flip-flops. Masculinity is back in vogue. When it comes to defending a society, manly traits are a must. Strength and courage, and risk-taking, and the will to fight. This is what's valued and respected. It's amazing to me, the same tendencies that'll get a boy in trouble today at school 
will win him a medal of honor on the battlefield. We need to shape our sons to love and care for other people, but we shouldn't strip them of their resolve to fight injustice and to defend themselves as well as the innocent people around them. Can't we see that's an act of love as well? I don't suppose the Swedish National Army has ever been known for their fierceness in battle. But I hope the Swedish troops don't get tested anytime soon. For recently, feminist troops petitioned to change the Nordic battle group's coat of arms. Traditionally, the Swedes have marched out into battle under the banner of a lion. But the female troops were offended by his male privy member, and so they had the lion neutered. Today, the Swedes go into battle under the emblem of a castrated lion. I'm sure the new mascot inspires fear in the heart of their enemies. This is not what we need to do to our sons. Tame the lion, if you will. Give him some food and satisfy his appetite for a time. Channel that lion in the right direction. But whatever you do, don't neuter the lion. You're going to need him one day. Let soldiers fight and let men be men. We need strong, brave, lion-hearted men to fight for our country. And we also need manly men who will fight for this church. Men who will protect and cover the ladies of this fellowship. Men who will stand up to abusive men who want to push around their families. Men who will be role models and who will mentor our youth, men who will help the fatherless and the widows, men who will work hard, pay their bills, tie their money, and be a witness for Jesus, men who will be bold enough to stand up for God's truth. We need men who see a brother taking a shortcut, maybe cheating on his wife or shirking responsibilities or blowing his paycheck or neglecting his kids. We need men who will care enough for that brother to go to him and to draw him back. In the home and in the church, God wants Christian men to rise up and accept the responsibilities of headship. And yet this is not what I'm seeing happening in most churches today. It's really sad. But if you walk into an Orthodox Jewish synagogue or into a Muslim mosque, you'll find a preponderance of men. But not so in a church. Statistics show that 60% of church members are now women. And tragically, most churches are led by women. If the pastor is still a man, well, you can bet after him there's a train of women who rule the roost. And this has catastrophic effects on the society at large. Only women and boys and weak, sissified men are going to receive spiritual truth from a woman. Young men are only going to listen to another strong, masculine man that they respect. See, this is why Paul wrote to to Titus and he says, he tells him, not the elderly men, not the women of the fellowship, but Titus himself to exhort the young men. And why? Because young men are only going to respect and listen to another man. There's another reason why the church needs men to rise up and lead. When the devil and his demons see a woman at the helm of the church, they just scoff. 
They refuse to take us seriously. We become a joke. Remember 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10. It tells us that the angels pay attention to gender. And what are demons but fallen angels? So tell me what demon will respect a female pastor or elder? Demons know that gender matters. A demon just laughs at our blatant disregard for God's word. Much is being illustrated and communicated through gender that is vital to God and it should not be taken lightly by us. And there is a third way that gender forms a society. Male approval is craved by both boys and by girls. Young men, wannabe men, desire affirmation of their masculinity, but it only comes to them through other men. Also, girls need a fatherly, protective kind of love that can only come from a man. All kids derive psychological significance from male influence. Several years ago, I took my single college-age daughter with me to Germany. I spoke at the Bible college, and she did the tour sites. And at night, we shared adjoining rooms at the director's house. Well, the night before we returned to the States, I asked Natalie if she'd enjoyed herself. She said, oh, yes, Daddy, I had a great time. But I am a little tired of all the man smells and the man noises. My little girl was talking about me smelling, making noises. Of course, Natalie has now been married for a number of years, and I'm sure she's become quite the expert on man smells and man noises. But I prepared her. And here's what I've seen. Girls who grow up around a man will gravitate toward a man. They like the stability of male leadership, of true masculinity, of loving leadership, servant leadership. That kind of a man anchors a woman. Girls flourish within the safety and love and strength of a true man. And they get used to the smells and the noises. As for boys, that's a different subject. One author writes a profound truth. A woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It's achieved by a revolt from woman, and it is confirmed only by other men. This is why a father's absence means there is a boy who is lost. For in his mind, becoming a man involves breaking away from mom. Mama's boy and real man are polar opposites in his thinking. But as he makes that break, he needs a strong father to define manhood for him and then bestow on him the title once it's earned. And if his manhood isn't affirmed by his dad or by a coach or some other positive peer group, the boy will run with the pack. And he'll do what's needed to gain affirmation from other young men who are just as lost and confused as he is. The rise of single motherhood and absentee fathers is crippling a whole generation of American boys. 
Right now, there are 22 million American males between the ages of 16 and 26 who are stuck somewhere between boyhood and manhood. In his book, Guyland, Michael Kimmel, he writes of these young men. He says, they suffer from a chronic inability to make a decision. They cannot commit to jobs, to girlfriends, to even a purposeful life. Nor do they seem especially ambitious. They drift from job to job. Some are fired. Some quit. And young men with little or no ambition, they get into trouble. Most of today's social problems, our exploding prison population, the drug culture, teen pregnancies, have been caused by young men with no ambition. Or the wrong ambition. When my son Zach started seventh grade... Kathy and I attended the school's orientation. And I'll never forget Mrs. Corbin's speech. She sat there and she thanked the moms for their mothering. And then she told all the moms to take a chill pill for the next 10 years. Mrs. Corbin said that it was now up to the fathers to shape their kids and steer them in the right direction. She said, Mom, you've done your job. Now, Dad, it's your turn. And Mrs. Corbin was exactly right. For when a boy reaches puberty, he needs a strong man to take charge of his development. Boys become men not by hanging out with a mom, but by interacting with other men. And if there's not a godly man in a boy's life, he'll hang out with rowdy, selfish, evil males with whom he can hang. A mom can tell her son, That he is a man until she's blue in the face. But he won't believe it. And he won't take it to heart until he hears it from another man. This is why sons derive great significance through male leadership. And while we're on the subject of a dad's significance in his son's life, let me offer you some crucial advice. A father needs to be his son's primary Bible teacher. Did you hear that? A father needs to be his son's primary Bible teacher. Dad needs to lead the way in his son's spiritual growth. Don't pass it off to the church as good as this one is. Don't pass it off to the youth leader, the middle school guy, the high school. Don't do that. Let me say it. A father fails his son if he abdicates to mom or to others the boy's spiritual training. And here's why. If your son only sees mom read the Bible and mom pray and mom talk about God and mom go to church, he'll assume that things of God are feminine, that they're for girls. And a boy doesn't want to be feminine. A boy is eager to do what dad does. And if your son mimics you, dad, what will he do? Watch football all day? Play video games? Work all the time? Play online poker? Think about it, Dad. You want a son to view Bible study as a manly activity. Well, let me wrap things up. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. A man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. As man is the glory of God, a woman is the glory of that man. 
See, as a man, I stand in the gap between God and my wife. My life should reflect God's glory. But my love should cultivate glory and beauty in my wife. Men, your wife and daughters are your glory. They're the byproduct of your cultivation. Headship means that you're responsible for bettering, of the, the, bettering the lives of those who are following you. That's what it means to be the head. Husband, that means that your wife's health and beauty and glory is your responsibility. And if she's not healthier, and if she's not more beautiful today than the day you married her, then why not? What have you been doing? It upsets me to hear a husband who's been married a decade say he doesn't love his wife. After 10 years of marriage, a man indicts himself if he says he doesn't love his wife. She's been in your care, guys. What have you been doing to make her more lovable? Realize a joyous, beautiful, godly wife is a testimony to her husband's love. While a depressed, brawling, nagging wife is proof of a husband's negligence. Gender roles, what goes on between the sexes, it matters to God. And it needs to matter to Christians. Gender informs and shapes a society through symbols for security and with significance. Father in heaven, thanks for your word to us this morning. Lord, we pray that we could take heed to your word. We thank you, Lord, again, that you've not left us in the dark. That you've shone a light onto our lives. You've explained why things are. You've explained how things work. Lord, help us to have the faith that no matter how different the culture may seem, no matter how lost the culture may get, Lord, help us to order our lives according to your word and your will for us. We want our lives to count for you. We want to live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.